Welcome to MuggleCast episode 432. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. We have a lot of good stuff on today's episode. We're going to be discussing what went down at the Wizards Unite Fan Fest in Indianapolis. And with one week to go until we start chapter by chapter for Order of the Phoenix, we are going to be looking at the parallels between Prisoner of Azkaban and Order of the Phoenix because frame narrative, right, Laura? Correct. I'm really excited about this. And what I will say is that the themes that we are looking at, they they are themes, right? Because we want to be able to get really granular when we're going chapter by chapter. So I wouldn't say to expect like every tiny little granular thing here, but we're definitely looking at the larger thematic elements. And we would love to hear y'all's feedback about anything you might have noticed. Laura has prepared for this like no other discussion has been prepared before. <laughs> it was incredible what you came up with. This it spreadsheet is. is so detailed and you click into the cells and you get more information. I was my mind was truly blown. We have to post that so everybody can see your work. Yeah, feel free. It was really great. It's just how I it's how my mind works. Today is also a special day. We're recording on September 1st. Back to Hogwarts, y'all. Choo choo. Choo choo. Choo choo. Chugga, 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 chugga. Choo choo. Wow. I used to love trains as a child, and now as you, you can don't. Tell, I'm still a child. Who didn't? But it, yeah, so September 1st this is a big day these days. We didn't really celebrate this as much, I think, like 10 years ago. But now that Harry Potter is over, everybody's really into hashtag back to Hogwarts. First of all, thanks to Apple for promoting our show and a new collection in their podcasting app. And welcome to any new listeners who may have found us through there. And sorry that our opening few minutes of the last episode last week, uh, we... We sorted a baby by their potty habits. So if you were new to the show and that's the first thing you heard, um, sorry. It I is think. Andrew's favorite weekly segment, by the way. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we do that every week. Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> I yeah, like, I did too. I, wish Apple, I was like, I wish Apple warned us so we could have maybe prepared a little bit <laughs> for our grand reveal, our reintroduction, but. That's Andrew, okay. though, that, that's the kind of content that people want these days, though. Let's be real. Absolutely. Yes. We're here for the shock value, aren't we? That's what we like to do. <laughs> yeah, we want all that palace intrigue. And so since it is September 1st and the Wizarding World franchise plays into this date, we thought maybe there would be some announcements today about things that are coming. Mm -hmm. And so far, now it's only 10 a.m. I don't think we're going to hear anything else today at this point. It's also a Sunday, Labor Day weekend. But Pottermore did announce something, and I'm not happy about it. <laughs> they have announced a reimagined sorting hat is coming soon to the website, and I guess that new app that's coming. I Does the reimagined hat mean that I could be sorted into a different house? I think so, Laura. I feel like there should be a way to connect my data yes. from my old sorting to this one so that it takes it into account. This is not right. Well, they already put us through this before. A month ago or two. Yeah, just, just a couple months ago when WizardingWorld.com started, they did a whole new sorting quiz and you could still connect your Pottermore then uh, or retake it, but it was completely different. They keep up to the... It, it, it wasn't that recent. It was further back than that. But okay. so Pottermore, they created 
a sorting hat quiz. It was J.K. Rowling's sorting hat quiz. This was back in like 2011. And Everybody that was loved the best. it. That was the best. Yes. Official, created by J.K. Rowling. Awesome. We're all into it. We may not have gotten the houses that we thought we were in, but that's okay because this is a new one, an official one, finally. Then, a few years ago, they remade the Pottermore quiz, and a lot of people got sorted into different houses. And that upset people because they feel connected to the house that they thought they've been in forever. And then Pottermore goes and pulls the rug out from underneath them. And now it sounds like they're doing another sorting quiz and we might be resorted. We might be moved again. And, oh, I was mad this morning. I woke up. I saw this tweet. I would like to apologize to the panel here. I tweeted from the MuggoCast account. <laughs> I tweeted Pottermore thread. I couldn't help myself. And I'm sorry that I hid behind our show account. I, sw- I said, I swear. <laughs> I said, I swear to God, if my house changes, and Pottermore replied, they said, we recommend mentally preparing yourself from now. Whoa. Oh, my God. They, they, no, they are they are coming for you, dude. They are gonna make you change your house. I, I, oh man, they're gonna make you such a Hufflepuff. (laughs) This is infuriating. Jewel, make this the social media clip. I, Pottermore, J.K. Rowling, they need to hear this. <laughs> People feel a deep connection to their Hogwarts house. They share it with their friends. They put it in their social media profiles. They buy all the merchandise. They get tattoos. Their Hogwarts house is a reflection of themselves. And it means Pottermore needs to take people's connection with their Hogwarts house way more seriously than they do. Just bring back Stop. the old one. Bring back the original Pottermore. Like, I've already been officially sorted by the official website of J.K. Rowling and the Wizarding World three times now. Right. Three times. Right. <laughs> and not because I took the test three times. Uh, you know, it's because after a couple of years, they get rid of one and replace it with a new one. We have also said on the show before they're not allowed to do this again. We told you, don't do this again. Stop it. You're screwing with everybody. Knock it off. Would anyone like to commit now to being loyal to whatever their new house assignment is? No. Oh, like in advance? (laughs) In advance of receiving it? No, 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 no. Being a Ravenclaw is, as you said, Andrew, a part of my identity. I mean, when I meet other nerds, and we're like talking, it's normal for it to come up in the course of conversation, like, oh, yeah, I'm a Ravenclaw. So, you know, obviously, I think this way. <laughs> and I-, I know that I've had these conversations with all of you as well. So, no, yeah, I won't commit to accepting another house. This is me. <laughs> but I will say something that's interesting, because I've got Order of the Phoenix on the mind, is the Sorting Hat does, in the fifth book, express some concern about the idea of sorting into different houses every time new people come into Hogwarts, somewhat fearing that it's wrong. So maybe this is J.K. Rowling and Pottermore's attempt to sort of like mix us up a little bit. You know how when you come back to school every year, your classes will have been mixed up from what they were the year before? Maybe that's what they're going for, for more unity. But I say, screw unity. I'm a Ravenclaw. Can't take that from me. (laughs) No matter the result that people get on this new quiz, they will stick with their original house. But it is disappointing and frustrating to see an official resource tell you that you are something else. Yeah. Again. That's what I'm trying to understand, though, is, is what is Pottermore ultimately trying to achieve 
it's September 1st. Maybe they're looking for one big announcement that they can make, but there's so many other things I feel like they could do that would really draw people in and make them happy. And certainly new content from JK Rowling would do that. I'm with you. I am a Ravenclaw. I was sorted that way from, excuse me, the very beginning. And I'm not taking 50 more tests just to see where I end up. Yeah. Just, it's just, this just seems reimagined sorting is, is what does that even entail? Is it just the experience that you're going to go through is so much different than what you've gone through previously (laughs) and answering questions. And, you know, if you're, I don't know. It's. I mean, it's just, you're not going to change. You're not going to perfect the original. Like we used to have like flash animated, very immersive, extreme thing. And then just a couple months ago when we all created our Wizarding World passports and I forgot my Pottermore login so I couldn't use it, I had to retake it again and it was just a bunch of radio buttons. It's just like this, that, this, that, this, that. Okay, click. It was like I was taking a BuzzFeed quiz and then I got my house and it was Gryffindor, which Pottermore originally said it was Hufflepuff. Mm. And now I'm all conflicted and, you know, that's just what it is. Yeah. The only thing that I can think of is is this really for new Potter readers and and so it provides mm. them with an opportunity to be sorted in a new and different probably, way. Probably Yeah, probably in part. I think this is also going to be tied into our wizarding passports that we were <clears throat> tasked with creating on the new Pottermore website. So there's it looks like there's a lot of change on Pottermore again and Hopefully this is the last one. This well, is it. We, well, last we should. Quiz we forever. should. I know it was Pottermore that that announced this, but we really should stop calling it Pottermore. It's WizardingWorld.com that's doing this. They did the passports, like they're the new hub, you know, mm. of like the Wizarding World. But but again, they already had this test months ago. So I I really ugh, I don't know what the reimagining is all about. One of our listeners, Laura, also pointed out that this is Lily, Luna Potter, and Hugo Granger Weasley's first year at Hogwarts. Oh, Congratulations, kiddos. Yeah. Good luck getting sorted. <laughs> <laughs> Can we all agree that's the definitive sorting when you're actually on the stool at Hogwarts with mm-hmm. the hat, uh, the relic of Gryffindor on your head? Um, yeah, Laura asked us, since J.K. Rowling seems unlikely to break her silence, sad face, meaning on Twitter, any chance you guys could fill in the blanks? So I guess that means, do we sort Lily Luna Potter and Hugo Granger Weasley? Oh, oh, that's cute. Well, Lily Luna Potter, I'll say she goes into Gryffindor. Mm-hmm. Hugo Granger Weasley... That could be a Gryffindor or a Ravenclaw. I, I think. was thinking Ravenclaw too. Yeah. You know, you know what's funny is uh, how J.K. Rowling throughout the books and especially like by the epilogue was like, oh, it doesn't matter what house you get and it's all it's all a thing. But then still sorted her children that we know of into Gryffindor and Slytherin and nobody got Hufflepuff or Ravenclaw. I would love to see Lily Luna Potter embrace her middle namesake and get into Ravenclaw. And I'd love to see Hugo Granger Weasley, like the most competent Hufflepuff in the new year. Mm. Mm. Well, we can all dream, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> but I was going to ask, did Cursed Child lend any insight into if either of them were sorted and, and what houses they were in? Are they mentioned the, at all? 
they are too young at the scene of the epilogue, which is 19 years later, to be in attendance. So I don't even know. I don't remember Lily Potter in Cursed Child at all, like not even cast as a, a physical presence on stage. Do you guys? Well, the family is at the platform at the very beginning, you know? Yeah. When when um, when Albus Severus is about to go through the platform. So she might appear there. I think she does appear there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, she does appear there. No dialogue, though. No, she's just seeing her older brother off to Hogwarts. Yeah, so we genuinely know nothing about... Although I think Lily is very supportive of Victoire and uh, Teddy getting together, I think, according Mm. to the epilogue. I'm not sure. Hugo does not appear in the play, but he is mentioned briefly. Ah. Thank you, Harry Potter Wiki. Ooh. Before we get to our Wizards Unite Fan Fest recap, quick tote bag update. Eric, we sent out a bunch of them, right? We did. It was our our, our entire first stock of MuggleCast tote bags carrying magic since 2005, they say. And uh, we actually, so we mentioned this last week, but uh, our supplier ran out of stock in the middle of our production. So we got the first 150, and what we decided to do uh, was to send them to our first ever MuggleCast patrons, the people who have been supporting us since January 30th, 2016. And believe it or not, 150 people still are supporting us from the first two days of our MuggleCast patron. So the the tote bags that we got in, we sent to uh, our longest patrons as a thank you to them. But then yeah. the remaining stock is being produced right now. We're going to get it this month and ship out. So everyone uh, who supported us over on Patreon at the Dumbledore's Army level or above will see their uh, physical gift delivered to them shortly. But uh, we had a little special something for the the longest supporters. Yeah, and we're live streaming this episode to everybody today. Woo-hoo. Anyone can tune in, whether or not you are a patron, because it is Back to Hogwarts Day. We thought we would celebrate the occasion. We should record an episode on Back to Hogwarts Day every year, come to think of it. This year, it happens to fall on our recording day, Sunday, but next year, we should record it on a Monday. Yeah. MuggleCast Monday. Nobody seems to like that idea. Well, also, we have Millennial on Mondays, Andrew. <laughs> well, Millennial will be canceled that week. Let's, oh, do, no. let's do the okay. long-awaited crossover between MuggleCast and Millennial. <laughs> on, on, on Back to Hogwarts Day. Yeah. There you go. 2020. Perfect. So thanks to everybody who supports us at patreon.com slash millennial. <laughs> thanks to everybody who supports us at patreon.com slash MuggleCast. Pledge today to receive early access to our episodes via live streams. I want to hear about Indiana. How was it? Yes. So we've been talking about the new Harry Potter game, Wizards Unite. And Micah, Laura, and I are still playing. Eric, I'm pretty sure, has not played in like three, four weeks, according to the information I can see through the app. Oh, you can see that? Well, the last thing that you've captured hasn't changed in like a month. <laughs> well, no, so... I exclusively I exclusively capture uh, filch tied to a tied to a, a shackle. I, oh, I it's kind of my thing. <laughs> that's that's your yeah. job in this calamity. My, my preference uh, of confoundables. Yes, I see. So I was really excited to go to this, and it was a great time. First of all, the night before, did a Harry Potter trivia night. Shout out to Jessica, Lindsay, Audrey, Brandon, Alicia, who was there, who, uh, but we missed. Um, 
for being on our Dumble Dam trivia team. We got fifth place. Not too bad, right? Fifth out of what? Like 25. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. We were actually third, and then in for the final question, we wagered a little too much, and we screwed up the answer, so we slipped. But. Oh, yeah. That sounds like an excuse to me. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that in the document, because now that I know that you guys got fifth place, you're about to complain about the ease of the questions. <laughs> the question, Yeah, I guess I shouldn't say that, but um, the, the questions were way too easy in a lot of cases. What street did Sirius Black live on, for example? Yeah. Um, there were some harder ones, but generally it was pretty easy. Eric, we've been to some difficult trivia. We nights. really have, Andrew. <laughs> so yeah. compared to that, wait a second. If this... they were so easy, how'd you mess up the final question? Because I didn't have Eric with me and my other Chicago uh, team members. What was the question? Um, God, what was the final question? I I forget to be you, honest. You've with erased you. it from your I'm mind. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, too it was also two and a half hours because the quiz master was moving way too slow. Oh man! And you were drinking, I'm sure. Oh, I was. <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> uh, what were some other fun team names? I know that's usually a highlight of trivia nights. Hmm. I forget those too. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Great>. Sorry. <laughs> well, then a good fun was had by all. Maybe we can ask some of your teammates. Can Can they come on the show and answer these questions for us? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I'm, par- I'm, I'm apparently revealing that I had too much to drink because I can't remember anything from the night other than we got fifth place. What was the name of the bar you went to? Oh, <laughs> O'Reilly's. I remember that. Oh, okay. Anyway, um, so the fan fest happened the next day. I had no clue what to expect because I was just like, so are we all just going to show up and stare at our phones and do anything special? Are we going to have to walk around? What is actually going to go on? When I initially arrived, first of all, this park, it was gigantic. So they picked a great location for it. It was also very beautiful. There were some rivers running through it and you can have you had good views of downtown. So it was it was a great space. But also when I arrived, I was just sad because everybody was staring at their phones. And I'm one of those people who's very who believes that what we see in the Pixar movie Wally is totally the future. And I just felt like I was seeing a scene from Wally with everybody staring at their phones. <laughs> but then I started playing and I became one of those people and it stopped bothering me. The big focus of the event was dragons. And after this weekend, the dragons are actually going to be going to different parts of the world. Indianapolis was the only place where you could capture all four dragons at this fan festival um in the morning we were tasked with collecting eggs and if we collected enough eggs the dragons would start appearing so they did a couple hours later um and you know in the assignments page of wizards unite there was a special page for there's a special set of tasks for players and there was a ton of stuff to do i only got through the second round i wish i stayed longer but i had to leave to get home to record Cast <laughs> back in chicago um but there was a ton of tasks in the second round and you actually had to walk to different areas of the park to collect certain types of confoundables certain types of dragon eggs and certain types of dragons when you completed the subsets in the second round, you got to capture the Hogwarts founders' portraits, and they hadn't announced that in advance. So that was a really cool surprise, seeing Helga Hufflepuff, Godric Gryffindor, Salazar Slytherin, Raina Ravenclaw. Um, that was really cool. 
got all those. Also got a ton of rare things that I don't normally see, like Dumbledore being attacked by Inferi. Whoa. Um, Dumbledore's portrait I got at one point. Uh, Hermione um, in a scene I haven't seen before. Like, there was so much rare stuff. I was having a ball. But legit, my neck started hurting because we were all staring at our phones for three hours, just kept looking down. You could you could <laughs> not get a break. So much stuff was appearing, and you wanted to get everything and complete these tasks. Mm. And I'm very proud to say I leveled up twice in one day. Nice. How much? Uh... <laughs> and leveled up at the trivia night the night before, too. So I'm a whole new wizard how much portable battery did you go through <laughs> you know i showed up with a full charge so most of the day i was good oh. but i did have to plug in and everybody was plugged in did they everybody. have stations for people they did and they had water stations they had <laughs> trivia going on they had merchandise for sale i waited in line an hour to get two shirts wow <laughs> but they were really cool shirts met a couple of muggle cast listeners um like I said, I, I wish I stuck around because there was more to do, and I probably could have leveled up again. But it was it was really fun. I if if they do another one that I can easily access, I will definitely go to it. There's also just a great sense of community. People from all people of all ages were there. Kids, people our age, adults, older people. Like everybody was really into playing this game, and it was just so cool to see all these people so be so enthralled with jk rowling's wizarding world um and everybody just got along great everybody was very friendly um yeah so it was it was a really good time and also just want to mention that in a wizards unite email yesterday they announced that adventure sync is coming soon if you're a pokemon go player you'll be familiar with this this will keep track of your steps um even when you don't have the app open we have spoken about that before and now it seems to finally be on the horizon. Huh. One question for you, Andrew. I actually started playing again yesterday for the first time in, in a little bit. And I noticed that there are these port keys, these special port keys. And I'm assuming that it just ties in with the overall experience of this weekend back to Hogwarts or Correct. some kind of adventure that's going on. And so I'm wondering... Is Indianapolis the only place you could get these dragons? Or if you collect a certain amount of eggs, I think it was four eggs, and they're only accessible through these port keys that you then have the opportunity to catch dragons no matter where you are? So Indianapolis was the only place where you can get all four dragons. They're going to go to their respective countries after this weekend. Mm. So we're only going to be able to capture one type of dragon gotcha. in North America. However, they have a lot of stuff going on. It's very confusing, to be honest with you. I was reading through an email with all the details. and I was just like, I don't get this. Tap, 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 tap. But if if enough eggs are captured over the weekend, a dragon from a foreign country will be in your own country for th a three-day period something like that so you might have a chance to mm -hmm. catch two micah yeah oh and by the way these aren't um these aren't uh you don't cast a spell like you normally do um to capture things this the dragons are actually battles Ooh. and they were kind of challenging because they're flying around so their heads are moving a lot and oh. it's hard to lock in on that target <laughs> like you do in uh wizarding challenges so it was uh it was it was fun. Right. 
had a great time. The, the reason why I was asking though too is because there's different kinds of port keys that show up. Yeah. And I'm guessing based upon what that port key is that that aligns with the specific dragon. So then what happens after you get, let's say four out of four, does a dragon just pop up and you have to battle no, them? I don't think so. Hmm. Those port keys are special to the weekend, but I don't know what they are. I don't, because I unlocked one and nothing special happened. Did you unlock one? I did, and then it told me that I collected one out of four dragon eggs, and I forget which dragon it was for. Oh, okay. Okay. Maybe I didn't get that message because I was playing in Indianapolis, but... Or because yeah, you were I don't just know. too I don't immersed read. in what was... Yeah, you were just clicking through and not paying attention, yeah. Right. Which I regretted <laughs> at Indianapolis because I was like, wait, I just tapped through it, and that's probably info I need to know to play the game. <laughs> but I, I will say I did notice even in the area that I am in, like I've said before, at home, it's very, very difficult for things to pop up on the map. Yesterday in particular, and I'm guessing it's probably true throughout the weekend, there's a lot more stuff just generally popping up. Huh. Yeah, back to Hogwarts weekend. I've, they're doing like a special event, so mm -hmm. I guess that's why. Yeah. Who knows? And also worth mentioning too, it is on tv i saw yesterday on the usa network that uh they are doing a back to hogwarts marathon and i think today it switches over to the sci-fi channel so oh, okay similar to how abc family and freeform yeah freeform similar to what they did in the past they are doing it again this year and uh what's also cool about it is they have fantastic beasts as well uh, after uh, Deathly Hallows Part 2, they air the first Fantastic Beast movie. Mm, okay. So that's Wizards Unite Fan Fest. Had a great time. Would definitely recommend going. I'm sure there's going to be another one. Who knows where it'll be? But uh, if I can access it easily, I will probably be there. Yeah. And it would have been so much fun to play with other people at the same time. Like, I was by myself for half of it. I wish one of y'all were there because... Um, it would be fun to complete the challenges together. I will come to the next one, I promise. And hopefully Yay. our difference in levels isn't a huge deficit. <laughs> I don't know if I want to be seen with a level five player. <laughs> well, you can't take him into battle either because he's going to get knocked out in like five seconds. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, while we move on to the next part of today's episode, Laura. Yeah. So as we tease at the beginning of the show, the main bulk of today's episode is going to be about connecting the threads between Prisoner of Azkaban and Order of the Phoenix. Um, just over a month ago, we took a look at the parallels between Sorcerer's Stone or Philosopher's Stone and Deathly Hallows. If you want to listen to that, it's episode 427. We've also done pretty extensive connecting the threads between Chamber of Secrets and Half-Blood Prince. And that's all kind of interspersed over our chapter by chapter of Half-Blood Prince, which is between episodes I don't even know. Um, you can assume before 427 <laughs> for those. Um, but it's really good. And this is all based in the idea that Harry Potter is a frame narrative wherein books one and seven, two and six, and three and five correspond to each other, with book four being the centerpiece of the series. So keeping this higher level so that we do still have some room to dig in on like a granular chapter level as we do order the Phoenix chapter by chapter. 
I wanted to start by looking at Harry Summers in Prisoner of Azkaban and Order of the Phoenix. One of the key things I noticed early on is that Harry leaves the Dursleys both times. And both times he leaves the Dursleys, he runs into some kind of trouble. In Prisoner of Azkaban, it's an imagined trouble. So after he blows up Aunt Marge, he runs away from the Dursleys, thinking that he's going to have to live as a fugitive. And then he encounters what he later interprets as the Grimm. Mm-hmm. Now, we know he's not actually in any real danger here, but in the moment, as readers, we don't know that, and neither does Harry. Now, it's interesting to contrast that with Order of the Phoenix, because after he has, or after Harry has a fight with Vernon, he wanders off. He doesn't run away from the Dursleys, but he does wander away from the Dursleys, which again is his sanctuary. That's where he's the most protected during his summer breaks from Hogwarts. And with Dudley in tow, he manages to encounter Dementors. And the interesting thing this time is that Harry actually does get expelled, but then gets unexpelled, (laughs) but then gets a hearing to talk about the use of underage magic outside of school. So I thought this was a really interesting contrast. I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts. I agree. It, it it actually ties in with a point that I have a little bit later on, but I think it's worth mentioning in the fact that right at, from the start, Harry is you know being protected in Prisoner of Azkaban by Cornelius Fudge and the Ministry. And if you look at what happens in Order of the Phoenix as a result of him, you know, dealing with the Dementor attack. He's actually, you know, in a way, Fudge transitions from being ally to enemy. And I just, I find that so interesting and kind of looking at the threads between these two books is that in one, it's like, oh, Harry, you know, you're, uh, you're fine for doing underage magic outside of uh, Hogwarts. Uh, let me protect you for the duration of the third book because there's this mass murderer on the loose. Uh, and then that's kind of how we see Fudge. But then in Order of the Phoenix... Look at what happens at um, as a result, right? He's he's forced to face a full trial, the umbrage, the whole deal. So it's just very interesting to see the contrasting um, versions of of the ministry. And in both cases, people are telling him that what he saw isn't real or didn't happen. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he he goes up against the whole Wizengamo. Uh, saying that there were Dementors, and that's a hotly contested point, whether or not they really were there. And in book three, he he keeps on saying that he sees the Grimm, and he really internalizes, you know, how he is feeling about maybe his (laughs) encroaching death. Um, We know that it isn't really the Grimm. We know it's Sirius Black, but he sees it, and Hermione is doubtful. Ron is skeptical, slightly. Um, just a fun connecting there. Yeah. And what's also cool is that in both of these cases, these encounters weren't accidental, right? Like Sirius was clearly looking for Harry and <laughs> Umbridge was the one who sent the Dementors. So mm-hmm. yeah. They're... It makes me wonder how close they can get. Um, we know that Sirius Black didn't have malice for Harry, like in his, in his, in his heart, but Harry had to go a couple streets over to like Wisteria walk to really encounter him. 
And that's the other thing I love about these two books is you get a, a lot of the other place names uh, around Privet Drive. So mm-hmm. there's like Magnolia Crescent and it's all very floral and lovely. Uh, <laughs> and, like Harry's away from Privet Drive, like maybe not what well, we know in the case of book five, not under the protection that Dumbledore has established. Yeah. Right. It's also from a reader perspective in book three – in book three, you're thinking, oh, this is so great that he has the protection of the ministry. And then in book five, and I still remember experiencing this feeling, that sinking feeling, knowing that the ministry is out to get him and is putting this poor kid through the ringer. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's he literally goes from being treated as, like, as if he's in witness protection to being treated like a criminal. Yeah. He basically becomes serious Black <laughs> in this book. <laughs> In terms of how the ministry views him. And we definitely have a lot of uh, points on the ministry a little bit later in this discussion. Um, There's also a pretty significant impact on Dursley family members in both books three and five. So obviously, as we mentioned in Prisoner of Azkaban, Aunt Marge gets inflated due to Harry not being able to keep his emotions in check. Kind of her fault. She called his mom a bitch. Like, <laughs> yeah, she deserved it. You know, she she had it coming. Uh, if somebody said that about my mom and I could make them inflate, I would. Um, but then in Order of the Phoenix, it just so happens that Dudley is in tow when Harry runs into these Dementors. And as a result, Dudley just becomes like catatonic after this yeah. encounter. And nobody really knows what's wrong with him. He's like green and looks like he might throw up. They can barely lift him off the ground. So I just thought it was interesting to see that in both books, sort of inadvertently, members of the Dursley family end up being impacted negatively by magic. Do you guys remember like the horribly vague thing J.K. Rowling said when asked about what Dudley saw? Yeah. Like she, she was like very suspicious about the horrors that Dudley has encountered Um, because somebody did ask her that once. I always kind of question whether muggles sort of relive their sad memories, just like wizards do or due to the nature of muggles, not noticing nothing, whether they would just be generally sad, like general malaise. But JK Rowling's answer always made me question kind of what he might've seen, because I think she said something like the Dursley's, like abuse comes in many forms or something. It, it was very weird. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, their abuse of Dudley was overindulgence. Yeah. But like, right? how does that translate to a Dementor bad dream? Like, like I, I've gotten, oh, you know what? I figured it out. It's the blueberry scene from Willy Wonka. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> he just, you know, he's being overindulged and then all of a sudden it t- takes a turn for the worse. Uh... But then... I mean, Petunia is also a total helicopter parent. Yeah. I mean, literally, Dudley and his friends are out bullying Harry in this chapter, and Petunia and Vernon think that he's out having tea at a friend's house. <laughs> like, their bully 15-year-old son is off having tea. Yeah, right. So there's there's a lot of pressure that comes with those kinds of expectations, mm. right? So, like, Dudley, yes, he's very spoiled. He's very overindulged. But his parents also have a lot of expectations about keeping up appearances. Mm. And Dudley doesn't exactly like I'm not even talking physically. I'm just talking about how he presents himself to the world. He's a pretty ugly character 
at this point. And I'm sure some of that, like there's some like deep subconscious awareness of that. And maybe that's what's coming to him when the Dementors are around them. Yeah. Maybe he envies Harry being able to just walk away. <laughs> True. Maybe. Yeah. What, what? I don't think he wants to walk away. I think that later in life, don't we get the sense that Dudley becomes more self-aware and he and Harry actually maintain a cordial relationship? Oh, yeah. So yeah, when he grows up, he turns into less of a bully. It's like it's like in the real world, you get you have your bullies in middle school, high school, not really as much in college. Yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking about from personal perspective. No, I, I have Facebook like, friends with people who bullied me. Oh, I, yeah. Well, don't, I couldn't well, say see, why. I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't be their Facebook friend, but if <laughs> yeah. I saw them at like the local Dunkin' Donuts, I'd probably be like, Hey, how's it going? Thanks for <laughs> ruining my childhood. Mm, yeah. enjoy that coffee uh when i run into those people i just pretend not to know who they are so oh, really yeah if mm. they come up to me and like i've had a couple of cases where people who bullied me in school would come up to me and like try to say hi whether we ran in, ran into each other in a public place and i would just be like who are you i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh man uh one one thing i wanted to bring up with the dementors was I found it interesting that in Prisoner of Azkaban, they are the ones who are tasked with tracking down Sirius Black. And then in the beginning of Order of the Phoenix, they're the ones who are you know, going after Harry, even if by Umbridge's instruction. Uh, and also that Umbridge is willing to use Dementors against Harry, probably knowing the effect that they had on him from Prisoner of Azkaban. So... Yeah. she's just a really nasty bitch but uh yeah and she can't possibly know that harry's master the patronus charm because that wasn't part of his curriculum that was something that he just did on the side with lupin mm -hmm. so she didn't even send these after him knowing that he could probably repel them she was like, yeah, go suck out this kid's soul. <laughs> but she probably knows stories, right? She probably knows about what happened on the train. She probably knows about what yep. happens happened during the Quidditch match. So she's aware of these uh, you know, interactions that Harry has had with Dementors and uses that against him, to your point, though, not knowing how accomplished he actually is. Right. I, I mean, the best case scenario there is that the Dementors weren't actually given the order to perform the kiss. Mm. Although we already know that Dementors don't exactly discriminate <laughs> between who they're going to attack or not. Right. Um, so it, it, this at best case scenario, this was another attempt to discredit Harry by making him appear crazy. Mm. Right. Mm. Worst case scenario is she just wanted to make Harry soulless so that he couldn't talk anymore. She wanted to silence him. This is the when you have this corrupt power and somebody's speaking out in a in a oppressive uh, form of government. This is what happens. They try and silence the differential people. Although she, I'd like to see Umbridge try that on Dumbledore. Very true. Ben. A couple of uh, other quick points about Harry Summers. Uh, I just noticed that in both of these cases, there was a sort of emergence of the wizarding world. Um, so right when Harry spots the quote Grimm in Prisoner of Azkaban, the night bus literally appears out of nowhere. The night bus is, of course, for like stranded wizards 
I think they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in Order of the Phoenix, after Harry battles the Dementors, Mrs. Fig pops up. And of course, this is when we find out, as many of us suspected in the fandom, <laughs> Mrs. Fig is connected to the wizarding world. And she actually retrieves Harry from this situation because Mundungus Fletcher has decided to leave his post. And although Mrs. Fig can't really do anything to defend them from the Dementors, I feel like she's sort of representative of really the first contact Harry's gotten from the wizarding world all summer. So I thought it was kind of cool that it came on the heels of this encounter, much like it did in Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah. And this was a feel good moment for both Harry and the reader, because it's nice to see that it was it was a very pleasant surprise to see that somebody has been secretly keeping an eye on Harry and at Dumbledore's ask. Definitely. Yeah, this whole wider world, this network that surrounds Harry of spies and people watching the the drive for him to really keep him kind of a prisoner, which there you go. There's your connection to book three um, this whole year, you know, exists kind of like the night bus is it's just out there and ready to be at your service anytime. And then we also had a couple of character reappearances in this chapter. Well, and regular old appearances. So The first thing I wanted to look at is how Harry meets Lupin, right? So he meets Lupin in Prisoner of Azkaban on the Hogwarts Express. um, And we don't actually see him again until Chapter 3 of Order of the Phoenix. And in both of these cases, Lupin comes to Harry's aid after interactions with Dementors. In Prisoner of Azkaban, they're actually sitting in the same train car together. So when the Dementor comes, Lupin's able to directly defend him uh, from it. But in Order of the Phoenix... A couple of chapters after the Dementor interaction, when Harry is being locked away by the Dursleys, Lupin is one of the nine witches and wizards who shows up at Privet Drive to break Harry out. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was really interesting that we really do see Lupin in both cases on the heels of these Dementor attacks. And I, I mean, I don't really remember Lupin being much in book four at all. So it's he wasn't. nice. Yeah, it's really nice to see him uh, when he comes to rescue her. I know it's with a group, but Lupin is, re- I mean, it's it's a, it's a tie between Lupin and Sirius always in my heart, but Lupin is such a good character and such a, um, a good father figure for Harry, and to see him in both of these books really warms my heart all the time. Did Dumbledore assign Lupin just the job of protecting Harry from the Dementors? Well, does he come bringing chocolate? Because I always picture Lupin as like having a couple of bars of chocolate in each of his pockets. <laughs> He's always like, have some chocolate, it helps. <laughs> no, and there then wasn't any of that. His... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think also what's really cool here is in Chapter 3 of Order of the Phoenix, it's called The Advance Guard. So many people show up to help fairy Harry from the muggle world back into the wizarding world. And similarly, in book three, the ministry actually has Harry the Weasleys and Hermione take private cars to get them to King's Cross because they're so afraid of the serious black threat. So Mm -hmm. in both cases, Harry has escorts, right? In one case, it's the ministry. And in the other case, he can no longer defend on the ministry and the ministry is trying to discredit him. So now it's up to individual actors to decide what's right here Mm -hmm. so i thought that was fun 
I wonder what Harry would have done if if people weren't coming to his aid, particularly in Order of the Phoenix. He would have died. I mean, they would have figured it out. They could have yeah. made it there on their own. Yeah. Right? I just think Harry is so restless because of the approach that Dumbledore has taken, mm-hmm. which I know we'll talk about in our chapter by chapters. But like, I very, I have a very difficult time accepting Dumbledore's plan here. But Harry is so restless, and unless I'm very much mistaken, when he hears uh, Mundungus Fletcher's disapparation, the loud crack, it kind of sets him off to to go running. Like he, yes, he he willfully just says i am i am so kept in the dark i know that was magic i have to go out and see it you know if he doesn't have an escort uh come come to him now like a, a whole group of people he's just gonna run off and probably hail the night bus and just leave on his on his own so it's as much for his protection as anyone else's that they come for him totally and then finally I thought we could touch on the point of Sirius just because Sirius makes his appearance in Prisoner of Azkaban and he takes his leave at the end of Order of the Phoenix. Uh, Really painful arc. Takes his leave. What a pleasant way to put it. (laughs) He's on a brief vacation. He he goes beyond the veil. Yes. He dies. (laughs) And then at Hogwarts, I thought there were some pretty... um, interesting contrast happening between book three and book five here. So in the classroom, Lupin makes it a point from day one to make defense against the dark arts a practical lesson, right? He actually brings from day one, brings in a bog art. Um, So pretty much in every defense against the dark arts class you see in Prisoner of Azkaban, they're meeting some kind of of creature or force or learning some kind of actual magic that they'll need to defend themselves. Whereas Umbridge sets the tone from not only her Hogwarts speech uh, early on in the book, but also in her first Defense Against the Dark Arts class of making sure the students know that this is all going to be theoretical and you won't be using any magic in my classroom. I love this. So frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. So frustrating. I really liked it. I I never thought about it this way. For me, as you mentioned, Laura, like to me, Lupin is really number one a father figure to Harry, but also the really the only professor that provides the foundation upon which he needs to move forward in the series from a standpoint of being able to face Death Eaters and face Dementors and face Voldemort ultimately. And the fact that they're actually getting these these practical uh, lessons that, that are going to mean something to them in the future, it really also lays the foundation for Dumbledore's army moving forward in, in book five. Uh, and, and you contrast that with what umbrage stands for i i just never looked at it that way the just how on opposite ends those two professors are but it, it is really true well and in between the two of them you have the perfect middle guy because barty crouch jr also does i think a lot of that work of teaching harry i mean what crucio feels like for crying out loud like you know really sets the tone but that's literally a death eater in an order of the phoenix members body so between three and five, the full spectrum is really uh, honed there. Mm. Pretty good stuff. Almost like a transition. Yeah. Both worlds <laughs> in one. 
And then um, another thread here is, of course, we get to see Hermione go up against Trelawney in Prisoner of Azkaban for being an ineffective teacher. And she very early on pushes back against Umbridge for the same thing, even though their intentions are very different. So mm-hmm. in Trelawney's case, she's just a bit dotty and <laughs> um, not somebody who has like much pedagogical background. Whereas in Order of the Phoenix, this is just straight up malicious, <laughs> trying to prevent children from being educated so that they can't rise up against you. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was interesting to see Hermione pushing back on both cases because in Prisoner of Azkaban, of course, she's just annoyed at the ineffective education. But in Order of the Phoenix, she really sees the threat that comes yep. with this kind of refusal to teach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hermione must have really had a different perspective on Trelawney after dealing with Umbridge. Umbridge probably just put Trelawney in a whole different light because at least Trelawney was there because she wanted the students to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Hermione does bring that up in order of the Phoenix. She's like, Hey, listen, I, I don't have the exact quote, but it's effectively, she's a crap teacher, but I don't want anything bad to happen to her. Um, right. And actually, while we're talking about Umbridge and Hermione, I want to get y'all's thoughts on something. So I'm going to jump a little bit ahead here. When I was doing this, I felt like I was seeing a really interesting contrast between Umbridge and Hermione. Um, In both Prisoner of Azkaban and Order of the Phoenix, so in Prisoner of Azkaban, it's Hermione, in Order of the Phoenix, it's Umbridge, we see them both take issue with the practice of divination, not even just Trelawney, um, but of course, she's part of it too. And they're both fairly dismissive of her. Hermione in class in Prisoner of Azkaban will be loudly disruptive about doubting the things that Trelawney's saying and almost mocking her. And we see something really similar in Order of the Phoenix, where Umbridge is shadowing Trelawney's class and says, well, if you could just predict something for me then. (laughs) And then when Trelawney doesn't understand, she's like, I'd like you to make a prediction for me. And then when Trelawney does make the prediction, Umbridge is like, right, well, if that's the best you can do. And she does this in front of the whole class. Yeah. Much like Hermione did when she was mocking her in book three. Yeah. I think there are similarities between them. Mm-hmm. Like Hermione is very much, if I read it in a book, it's true. Young Hermione is like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they don't, she doesn't really have the patience for the nuance of the art of divination, kind of like Trelawney accuses Hermione of. And I think Umbridge is mostly the same way. Umbridge is trying to ridicule, trying to, you know, say, well, just predict something. It's it's very much no no accounting for the more organic nature of the of the yeah. art. I agree. Yeah. In both cases here, we have Hermione and Umbridge um, sort of like denigrating what they don't understand yeah now i think hermione's comes from a more earnest place right Right. umbridge has definitely got some you know nefarious uh plans in mind but i thought it was interesting here because i felt like in reading about these characters responses to divination and trelawney i was seeing different gradients of like the rule abiding spectrum wherein umbridge is representative of like being too married to the rules yeah and sort of using them as a way to push your agenda (laughs) right i 
I was going to say something that that I thought was going to be unpopular, and I think Eric just kind of hit it, was that there are similarities between Hermione and Umbridge. Yeah. The difference, though, I will say, is that Hermione in this case is 13 years old and is still Mm -hmm. a student. And so I think she has a right to not like certain classes. But at the same time, I also think that we raise Hermione up on this pedestal because we do know how smart she is. And she is very much, I think, as was mentioned, by the book. And and there are certain things I think about divination that are not in a textbook. It's just it's just the nature of the subject itself. Yeah. Versus Umbridge, who's an adult, you know, at, at, at very much so at this point. And for her to be behaving in that way, I think that's just more indicative of who she's become as as a ministry official and and even as a person she's she would do anything in her power to try and find something about somebody to dismiss them she doesn't just do it with um Trelawney she does it to as many professors as she can to undermine mm-hmm. Dumbledore right she tries to get rid of Hagrid she tries to get rid of Flitwick she tries to get rid of um Snape even uh or at least <laughs> it's intimated in in the way that uh, you know, she goes about her conversations with them. She's looking for something, even the most minute thing, to to banish them from the school because they're ineffective at their jobs. I like that, and 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 I mean, Umbridge should know better because, especially, uh, particularly in regards to divination, Umbridge should know better. She's an adult, and surely at some point between you know when she was a young person maybe attending hogwarts herself to now she surely has heard about a prophecy coming true or other witches and wizards who found success with divination it surely is a part of everyday wizarding life to hear things like you know somebody saw this in a crystal ball or something that, because it's it's so popular it's a subject at hogwarts like they teach this so that you can do this clearly it's so much more of a a, a part of daily life for for umbridge to be so dismissive of it is kind of ridiculous i mean she works at the ministry where in the basement there are hundreds of rows of crystal balls with prophecies in them that have been made like does she just think that's bunko does she think that's no good like they've never mm. you know amount to anything for any adult wizard or witch to be completely dismissive of uh the subject of divination is just it doesn't make any sense to me i do think it's an indication that umbridge is just not terribly bright <laughs> Um, The fact that we're able to draw all of these comparisons between her behavior and the behavior of a 13-year-old, and that 13-year-old we see grow out of that behavior and become... You know, she her mind is quite broadened by the end of the series, Hermione, I would argue. Um, But I think Umbridge, this is making me think about how she's very much representative of actual situations we've seen over the course of history wherein people were threatened by intelligence and academia and they didn't understand it they didn't excel at it so the only thing they knew how to do was to try and stop people from advancing intelligently because with that comes the threat of something like a student uprising or a revolt, right? Which is ultimately what 
umbrage as it ho- is at Hogwarts trying to prevent. Yep. And she ends up inspiring it, which is like a self-fulfilling prophecy come true. Mm. Right. It's just so interesting to see because she's very Umbridge is reflective of that like anti-intellectual movement that we see from time to time in the world. Right. Um, there's definitely sometimes a distrust of uh, institutions of higher education or academics. And that often comes from a place of just not understanding Right. And not having had those experiences. So I would say that Umbridge probably feels threatened because she knows she doesn't get this stuff. And rather than trying to open her mind and understand it a little more, she just assumes that anything that is outside of her bubble must be wrong. I'll also throw into the mix, though, that we do see McGonagall very skeptical of... Trelawney as well. That's true. That's actually, and I, I think yeah. the the fact of the matter is that Trelawney is just not she she's incompetent mm-hmm. and she's had it coming and it was I think it was right for Hermione to call her out for the reasons that she lists throughout the books um, and I think the reason similar to McGonagall it's just that Trelawney most of her predictions or at least half of them are not accurate. Right. And also, I would say, too, it's possible to be skeptical of a discipline, but not be disrespectful to your colleagues. Mm. (laughs) And I feel like McGonagall does a pretty good job of, you know, she demonstrates that she also struggles with um, understanding divination. But I don't think she ever out and out says anything that's just straight up disrespectful towards (laughs) Trelawney. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder if Hermione and Trelawney's, sorry, if Hermione and McGonagall's skepticism of Trelawney was largely to confuse the reader so that if Trelawney makes a prediction, you as a reader are unsure whether you should put much stock into it or not. Right. Maybe that was the whole point of all this Mm -hmm. because some of them do come true and it's like, whoa, that's so cool. But also some of them do not come true. So we can't just you know, get all the answers about the future of the Harry Potter series through everything that comes out of Trelawney's mouth. Yeah. I actually like that. As you said, Andrew, a moment ago, like McGonagall and Hermione are so skeptical of Trelawney in book three, especially too. I think McGonagall does get some good jabs into like, she clearly thinks she's sort of ridiculous as a person, but uh, the opposite end of the frame narrative is book five, which centers around the prophecy, mm-hmm. right? The big reveal at the end of the book is the prophecy about Voldemort and Lillian James Potter coming true. And so for book three to have leaned so heavily into uh, prophecies are false until they're real. And then book five be, well, we're in some hell. And at the end of this, it's all because of a prophecy uh, is a really good mirror image kind of. Definitely. And doesn't Dumbledore have that comment in book three about Trelawney having two prophecies that have come true yes i think so she well she talks about um the servant being reunited with the master which of course is Pettigrew. Mm. um but later on when harry's filling dumbledore in on this dumbledore is like oh well that that would be the second time oh yeah which of course as a reader you're like huh what was the first yep <laughs> and we find out about that in book five there you mm-hmm. go love it So looking at ministry interference, and I know Eric and Micah, y'all put some other points in here. So feel free to like throw them in here because I don't want us to Mm -hmm. overlook them. Yeah. Um, 
I thought it was interesting to look at ministry interference as it comes to, or or rather as it relates to Hogwarts curriculum, um, because that kind of felt like the most salient thing between the books. Um, so in Prisoner of Azkaban, we have Buckbeak, right? Buckbeak uh, scratches Malfoy when he's disrespectful towards him. And Lucius Malfoy very clearly and transparently exercises his influence to have Buckbeak tried before the Committee for the Disposal of Dangerous Creatures uh, by perpetuating the lie that Buckbeak is violent. In Order of the Phoenix, we actually see Lucius Malfoy sort of loitering near the trial room where Harry was trying to figure out what the outcome of his hearing was. And Mr. Weasley tells Harry that, oh, Lucius was probably here waiting for the minister because he trades gold to get what he wants. So <laughs> Lucius is very effective at donating to all the right causes so that he can have laws delayed or even canceled before they pass. So seeing that little tidbit in Order of the Phoenix really made me wonder, ah, okay, in Prisoner of Azkaban, who did he pay off <laughs> to make this happen? I mean, it, it, it's it just, you mentioned the transparency, but like, isn't he threatening the other school governors in book two as yes. well? Like, you know, he is not a good dude and he's Mm-mm. in the shadows throwing money at, uh, people with dubious uh, means and causes and, and, and power. And it's and very... At the end of Order of the Phoenix, doesn't he become the prisoner of Azkaban? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Sucks to suck, Lucius. <laughs> Sucks to suck. Um, but, oh, speaking of interfering in the curriculum, though, the ministry grants Hermione Granger, a 13-year-old student, a time-turner. Now, granted, I know McGonagall goes to bat for her in Prisoner of Azkaban. And in retrospect, we're like, really? But she was 13. Couldn't she have waited a few years to do double duty? Um, <laughs> but like the ministry gave her the the time turner. It's a so crucial central part to book three and how the plot is able to to work out. And in book five, we actually see the room where the, the room where it happens, the room where they are made and uh, all the time turners, which did represent a uh, significant plot hole, I think, as you near the end of the series, all of them get destroyed. So I wanted to draw the connection all between... All of them. Wink, all, except for one. <laughs> all, all of them, wink, 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 wink. And and barring any prototypes that maybe uh, Death Eaters may be holding on to for safekeeping. Yeah. And really, I, I do want to talk about that for a second, because in retrospect, reading this, I'm like, okay, so you know that time travel is extremely dangerous. We've heard allusions to what happens when wizards go back and like muck with time and y'all trusted a 13 year old with this. Like she's like a really disciplined 13 year old. All A's. Yeah. But I don't, there's full adults. I wouldn't trust with this. Like, (laughs) I don't know. No, you're right. That's an incredible responsibility to give to a 13 year old. And Another knock against Dumbledore and Hogwarts being a security nightmare. (laughs) Security nightmare. (laughs) Well, this just goes beyond security. I mean, that is space and time. Yeah, this is ministry high. What's the saying? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm -hmm. There's nobody but Hermione who should be given. And if if they give a time turner to a 13-year-old who just wants to take more school lessons, you would think that they would be giving time turners to licensed adults who just want to sleep in on their work days. You know, yeah. or like who who are 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 really working against the clock to solve some complex arithmetic. Just, like, 
just let her take the class on the weekend or something. It's not like the professor isn't there. That's what I was going to say. Maybe like another school she can enroll at at the same time. Nowadays, it'd be no problem. She could just take online mm. classes. But back then, maybe a, a whole other school yeah. Would, be, yeah. would suit her well. Well, don't bring up Hogwarts Online because we know that in Hogwarts Online, you'd be in a totally different house. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, sore spot. Yeah. Wow. The only thing I was going to bring up with respect to the ministry, we kind of touched on this already earlier on, but... Uh, in, in Prisoner of Azkaban, Cornelius Fudge is more than happy to take care of the Aunt Marge situation and is, in fact, protective of Harry throughout the school year with Sirius Black being on the loose. And in Order of the Phoenix, the Ministry deliberately tries to frame Harry for using magic outside of Hogwarts, and Fudge turns from ally to enemy. And I just thought that was a really nice parallel between the two books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Harry's on the opposite side of the the things there. Um, another about another thing about opposites. Uh, we mentioned the prophecy a moment ago about Lily and James. We know that it could equally have applied to Frank and Alice Longbottom. And I was reminded that in book five, which is all about this prophecy, we also see Frank and Alice Longbottom in St. Mungo's. And to, not only to think of what could have been for the series as a whole, but book three is all about the Fidelius charm that, you know, the the lengths which Dumbledore and company went to to protect James and Lily. And it kind of got me thinking, like, we, we've heard all about how the Fidelius charm works. We see it again in book five for Grimald Place. There's another connection. Mm-hmm. But why didn't Dumbledore also protect Frank and Alice in that way? You know, what What really, I mean, nobody was expecting Bellatrix and Barty Crouch Jr. and the Caros, I think, to go off and torture them. But if the prophecy, if Dumbledore knowing about the prophecy could have applied to either set of big dark, you know, dark wizard catchers, uh, why wouldn't you also extend the same protection to Frank and Alice? Had he already made it clear that he chose Harry? At this point, I don't think he does until he shows up at, on the on the doorstep. Interesting. Maybe they did. Maybe somebody betrayed them. Maybe that's another connecting the threads. <laughs> but on the on the long bottom point, what's really interesting too is that in Prisoner of Azkaban, when Harry gets on the night bus, he pretends to be Neville, uh... and I thought this was so nice because really, I mean this. This story is very much a Christ narrative in terms of the character arc. And Harry, in this case, is Jesus. And Neville is very representative of John the Baptist, because in that story, the Messiah could have been either one of them, right? I thought you were going to mention Brian, like Monty Python's Brian. (laughs) The guy, the kid born in the stable next door. I haven't heard this John the Baptist uh, alternate arc. I didn't know that at all. Mm -hmm. Crazy. So yeah, it's it's interesting to see how linked Harry and Neville are throughout this. But um, thinking about sort of the ministry interference line that we're we've been chatting about here, um, with the removal of Buckbeak, the ministry sort of like uh, I'm trying to think of a more appropriate word here than the one that occurred to me. Um, they sort of like kill Hagrid's um, confidence in teaching care of magical creatures and. The class resumes with flobberworms for much of the rest of the term. So 
sort of indirectly here, the ministry is influencing the curriculum that's being taught in Care of Magical Creatures, much like they do in Book 5 with Umbridge. It starts with Defense Against the Dark Arts, but very quickly with all of these educational decrees, um, it extends to the rest of the school. Mm, definitely. There's there's one point I wanted to go back to, and, and I'm not sure who put it in here, but I thought that it was really, really uh, well made, is that Harry meeting Lupin on the Hogwarts Express when they find him sitting alone in the compartment, mm-hmm. uh, and Lupin being so integral to the plot of Prisoner of Azkaban, and then Harry encountering Luna as she sits alone in an empty compartment and we know how integral Luna becomes, not only to the plot of Order of the Phoenix, but moving forward as a member of Dumbledore's army, as a friend to Harry, and also that if you go into the etymology of Mooney and Luna, they're both of the moon. Man. Yep. And they're the same, in the same, very same situation in book three and book five for Harry. Mm. I love that. I did not make that point. I don't know who put it in there, but it was, it's a good one. <laughs> Eric said, I love that. So probably him. It was probably me and I've forgotten. <laughs> there's there's also a lot of world expansion in Order of the Phoenix. And, and I would say there's maybe not as much in Prisoner of Azkaban, but you look at the ministry, you look at St. Mungo's. Uh, but but I did think in Prisoner of Azkaban too, the world opened up a lot more with the story of the Marauders and mm-hmm. the Whomping Willow and the Shrieking Shack. And I think we got just introduced a lot more to the the world that exists in and around Hogwarts and, and the opportunity to be able to travel uh, to Hogsmeade. Oh, yeah. And uh, there was a point brought up earlier about Grimald Place, and, and I would argue that Sirius is is just as much a prisoner in the third book as he is in book five. Yeah, and you know they're mentioned the Whomping Willow, the Shrieking Shack. Uh, you know him having to really for pretty much the entire book of Prisoner of Azkaban be on the down low and and be a prisoner within his own animagus form and he's very much a prisoner in order of the phoenix inside grimmel place inside his family's home which he grew up in and and he really detests on some level yeah and just wanted to get your thoughts on that i'll never forgive dumbledore for not letting not presenting sirius with an alternative and we know that sirius being cooped up all year leads to his impulsiveness and his eventual death mm by going to the ministry. I do so. wonder what other option there was though, because Sirius is a wanted person. Change his face. Go on a long <laughs> vacation. <laughs> yeah. I guess I just, cause remember Sirius makes the decision to accompany Harry to platform nine and three quarters as his animagus self. Mm-hmm. And Draco recognizes him. Yep. And they tip yeah. off the daily profit and now the ministry knows that Sirius Black is in London. So I wouldn't do what? I wouldn't sorry, I wouldn't blame Dumbledore. Sirius was gonna do his own thing no matter what. He wanted to be close to Harry. Well, Sir I think it's and we'll go through while reading it, but maybe Laura, you have an answer, but like Dumbledore pretty much actively demands Sirius remain at Grimald Place, to my memory. Yes. Like and Sirius whole- ignores him. Yeah. Right. 
But that's my point. And also Snape tells him to remain at Grimmauld Place too, which I think makes it worse. Yeah. Well, I, I just, I won't forgive Dumbledore because of how he treats Harry in this book either. So this is going to be like the Dumbledore hating book, but <laughs> I love Dumbledore in book six, so it's okay. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, just comparing how open Dumbledore has been previously with Harry, um, but especially in Prisoner of Azkaban, he allows Harry to go save Sirius but then in book five, when Sirius goes and tries to save Harry, it ends so badly as I would say an indirect result of the lack of information flow that's been provided in this book. Yeah. I've just uh, thought of another one of those connections. We learn the Patronus charm in book three. It's not easy. It takes Harry many lessons to get right. But in book five, we, we have to learn occlumency. And mm -hmm. legitimacy. That's the other next level magic that really only adults need concern themselves with unless you're Harry Potter um, in the world of Harry Potter when the years of Harry Potter are happening. And then that's it's another big subject that really um, Harry is in over his head with. I think with occlumency, though, unfortunately, it he doesn't study very hard and it and it fails. Yeah. Well, also, um, the whole reason that Harry's getting the Patronus lessons in book three is because Lupin, of course, is a marauder. He was really close with Harry's parents. So there's a degree of responsibility that Lupin feels there to prepare Harry for um, the dark things he's going to encounter because of who he is. Whereas with Snape, Snape ends their occlumency lessons because Harry gets too far into Snape's well, actually, Harry goes into Snape's pensive and sees Snape's worst memory. So in both cases, you have one side where the classes are happening because of who Harry is. And then the other case where the class is ended because of who Harry is and who he's related to. That's good. And yeah, thinking of Lupin and Luna briefly again, Lupin really encourages Harry to look within himself, really opens up his world by saying this is who you are like this is where you come from um and really gets harry in touch with who his parents were as people which i love lupin for uh and luna kind of encourages harry to see things in a new light she opens up the world of the strange and bizarre and the impossible and the you know very weird the nargles and the you know talking about things that probably only half of them actually exist but you know, Lupin and Luna are both uh, being of the moon. They're both supernatural in a way. Uh, they really expand Harry's world. Hmm. Definitely, especially as it relates to the topic of death. Yes. Mm. Right? Yeah, because Luna can see, can hear the whispers, right? And she can see the Thestrals. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, oh, I wanted to connect the Thestrals to the Grimm. Because Harry says he sees the Grimm. People are like, eh, it's not really Grimm. Then he says he th sees the Thestrals, and they're like, oh, those are really dark, dude. You shouldn't be seeing those. Um, <laughs> yeah. What's wrong with you? Yeah, well, also, when he brings it up, everybody's like, I don't see anything, man. And they're, like, right in front of Ron's face, and he's like, I don't see anything. <laughs> <laughs> if only Harry could be so lucky. <laughs> Something else I noticed uh, about book three and book five is how much everybody works. This might be a thread throughout all of them, though, so I don't know how it works, but people serving Dumbledore 
um, you know, Hermione spends that whole year keeping her secret about the time turner. But in the end, Dumbledore is able to use Hermione having the time turner to get himself out of a sticky situation. He's able to interfere with the ministry without actually being shown to interfere with the ministry. And in book five, it's the same with Dumbledore's army. Dumbledore is able to stick it to the ministry without being able to be seen sticking it to the ministry. But in both cases, there's these, you know, the students, the good, good natured student of Hogwarts are really working for themselves and the side of good, but Dumbledore predominantly benefits from their work. Yeah. I love this idea of it being Hermione's secret, especially given all the work that we know she does with Dumbledore's army to prevent the secret from leaking. Yeah. It's like something like Hermione full, full on and foremost more than anybody else besides maybe Harry serves Dumbledore in a really loyal way kind mm-hmm. of in the end. Yeah. Just that's a, awesome. Yeah, I hadn't thought about thought. that. Yeah. Hermione, you're in charge of time and please keep it all a secret. <laughs> no big deal. And she does. Cause she's just like, yes, sir. You know? Yes, yeah. Professor. So. Yeah. So Laura, what is your mic drop? You said an ending one. I feel like there's a mic drop moment oh, is coming. No, no, no. It's not a mic. <laughs> I'm just thinking like chronologically. I'm trying to keep us moving through the books like sort of okay as as in order as we can so that people can follow along. <laughs> Good luck with that. We've done 450 episodes, Laura. You should know better than that. I right know. <laughs> I know. I, you know what? There's always room for improvement. Um, something that I thought was really interesting between Prisoner of Azkaban and Order of the Phoenix is... Both of these books, at least portions of their climactic moments, center around Harry and Hermione and Ron being indisposed in some way. Um, so in Prisoner of Azkaban, Ron is literally indisposed. He's like unconscious in the hospital wing. So he's missing from all of the Time Turner action in that book. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, mm. He is more present in Order of the Phoenix when they go to the Ministry. But in Order of the Phoenix, the initial push in the climax is Harry and Hermione being caught in Umbridge's office and subsequently marching her down into the forest to, uh, you know, find the weapon that Hermione tells Umbridge they're making for Dumbledore. The weapon ends up being Grop and it doesn't work the way that Umbridge thinks it's going to. But I thought it was interesting because in both of these cases, Harry and Hermione kind of have to fly by the seat of their pants, right? Yeah. Hermione's just like, oh, I'm going to go show you this weapon. And she really has no idea what she's walking towards in the forest, much in the same way that she and Harry kind of had to figure out like where to go and what to do when they were playing with time so that they didn't meddle with things too much. I mm. I love that. And isn't Ron attacked by the brains and then incapacitated? Like he, mm-hmm. he, he also gets pretty injured in book five at the end. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's nuts. I, yeah. I can see why people who ship Terry and Hermione, maybe by the end of book five, too, got a sense that that was going somewhere because of them being paired up together so often and working so well together. I mean, even in book seven, Ron is off and it's Harry and Hermione making strides. Like they work well together. Yeah, they do. So I have a question to kind of put a bow on this. How many of these do you think JK Rowling actually planned versus how many 
we've just uncovered because we're Harry Potter scholars who live and breathe this stuff. <laughs> well, have you seen that notebook paper that she shared? It was a piece on her original website that had chapters of Order of the Phoenix specifically. I'll never forget it. And bullet points for plot items and and like relevant uh stuff that like like uh outlines did you see it's like her outline of book five yes yeah that sold it for me that like anything in those bullet points was thought about enough and i'm sure that those are the things that then connect to like other chapters of other books yeah i would i feel like probably a lot of what we talked about today was intentional there may be some areas where we're reaching a little bit and it's just sort of like a happy coincidence that it works. Mm -hmm. But looking at like just looking at the summer arcs, because when I was planning this, I divided it up into sections. So I looked at summer term one and term two and within term two is nested sort of the climax and the resolution and looking at those sections and comparing them to each other. There are so many similarities in the arcs that I find it hard to believe that it was unintentional a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So I yeah. want to show her my spreadsheet and be <laughs> like, how right is this? The spreadsheet like, is Laura, you're crazy. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I didn't think of any of this. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, I, I think that probably if you look at just everything that we've talked about to in previous conversations as it relates to Sorcerer's Stone, Deathly Hallows, Chamber of Secrets, Half-Blood Prince, it was built in a specific way and it probably only got easier for her as as time went on. You know, when you're when you're able to reference back to Prisoner of Azkaban and say, okay, how can I lay out some things in Order of the Phoenix that allow them to have this ring composition or or frame narrative as as we've been calling it. Now, certainly Order of the Phoenix is a lot longer than Prisoner of Azkaban, so there was a lot more liberty taken there. But, but I would like to think that a lot of this is intentional, going off of what Eric and Laura have said. I, I think it would be probably nearly impossible for it not to be. Um, now, there are definitely things that were probably embellishing a little bit, but that's part of the fun of it, too. I mean, I was trying Absolutely. to figure out, like, really, like, end of book – in my mind, could you compare Prisoner of Azkaban with with Order of the Phoenix? And and I was thinking back to Dumbledore, and you know he really, in a way, undermines the Ministry in in both, right? And he undermines it in Prisoner of Azkaban by aiding in Sirius Black being freed, and he kind of undermines Fudge at the end of Order of the Phoenix by proving to him that Voldemort is in fact back and i don't know if that's legit or if i'm just kind of pulling that out of my ass or that that's you know something that we can can use i agree I, there's yeah. like we could literally because like as we've talked i've had at least like five more connections come up to me just over the course of this conversation because of things you all have said but mm -hmm. we do really want to save those so we have some connections to make for chapter by chapter. It would be a really boring yeah. 38 yeah. chapter by chapter episodes if we were like, well, we already said this. Definitely. Right. But when you look at some of the like really intentional choices made in Prisoner of Azkaban and then you see them mirrored in Order of the Phoenix, it's like, oh, my God. 
Yeah, I, I think the, the biggest uh, way to test if it was intentional or not is really just to see what things appear in all books, right? Like like mm -hmm. Dumbledore and his antagonism towards the Ministry is a theme throughout all seven books, sure. But I really do think it's honed in books three and five. Um, Agreed. You know, in the big ways. And so there are, there are threads all throughout or arcs, character arcs all throughout. But – the, where we see these specific connections is like it makes the back of your head, the hair on the back of your head stand up, you know? It's like mm -hmm. pretty cool stuff. Yeah. And of course, this is why MuggleCast has been going on for so long because we can dive into the stuff whether or not J.K. Rowling planned it that way. Sometimes I wonder if she were to listen to a podcast or even read, let's say, the MuggleNet editorials that we were talking about recently, her mind would just have to be blown, right? Because there's, I mean, I'm sorry, but there's no way she thought about some of this stuff in the detail that we did, or she'd still be writing book four. Uh, Maybe. I, I don't know. I She's don't, a master planner. Just, yeah. No, I know. But all the analysis and stuff that we do, did she think about every little aspect in the way that we do in other podcasts? And I'm not saying she, it's by luck. Well, I'm sure not. That's not, I mean, literary analysis is, you know. Obviously, as readers, we are probably picking up on things and drawing our own conclusions based on our life experiences, right? And that's the fun of it. But right. I think largely when you look at it thematically, these things were very likely intentional. Like, mm -hmm. was every little nitty gritty conversation that happened between Snape uh, and Dumbledore in book three, reflective of every conversation they had in book five? No. But was the, was Snape's general arc in those books planned? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So right. when you see like in book three, you have Snape being very much in favor of letting Sirius Black have the Dementor's kiss. And then in book five, he runs to tell Sirius about Harry's secret message that he gave him and tell Sirius to stay at Grimmauld Place to make sure that he's safe. Mm -hmm. Of course, of course. That, it, that is a really interesting arc and, and they sort of, you know, they're inversions of one another. But that kind of stuff, I would argue, is absolutely planned. Yeah, and uh, if I can just interject as a writer... Uh, a writer. I'm I'm still working on the as a writer of Harry Ginny fan, fan fiction. fiction. Yeah, yeah. My I was gonna say what what books have you published recently, Eric? That we can all go uh, and read. Well, there was even I one... have published a book before you. Never sever us. There, I know. Well, In yeah, that's true. What's that about, Andrew? Uh, a very inappropriate subject matter. <laughs> so my Harry Ginny fan fiction writing, if it's taught me anything uh, about writing. And it is still coming, everybody. It's been a, uh, several months, but I'm working on it. Is that everything you write, when, especially when writing dialogue, everything has to be intentional. You play with sentence phrase, you, your structure. You, you play with like the words used. And if you use different words or even move them out of order, the meaning changes. And so just writing in general, these – like she wrote 870-something pages, whatever book five is, like – she wrote those words and so she played like her brain they came out of her brain they they were structured in that way it's intentional in just the most vague sense of the word intentional mm -hmm. because she wrote it and so i think that i i do give her a lot of credit for for choosing to make these kinds of connections because i've been there in the room going well should i have jenny say uh something about should should I have Ginny make a joke yeah. right now or should I have Ginny be like really honest? Um, 
you know, and is she covering up for something? So mm-hmm. you're constantly questioning character motivations, care where they've been, where they're going, all this kind of thing when writing, because you can't help but not to. And J.K. Rowling's such a good writer that I think it comes pretty naturally to her. Like, I don't think she's as encumbered as the rest of us would be, myself mm-hmm. included, trying to fit all of these points into a book. I think she just got that good at it by that point. I'm not saying she didn't plan this stuff. I'm saying she did not. She would listen to some of the analysis and be like, wow, I was never thinking any of these things. Yes. I think 100%. It would crush me to hear it, but I believe that's 100% correct. Right. (laughs) You know what, though? It wouldn't crush me because I feel like as a writer, I would imagine it'd be kind of cool to hear about people diving that deep. And it would be totally, I I think, possible to say like, wow, I didn't actually like think about it that way or necessarily plan it that way. But you're right. (laughs) That works, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm hmm. All right, so next week we will begin chapter by chapter Order of the Phoenix. We started it years <laughs> ago and then we dropped off for some reason. And because we didn't get too far into the book back then, we decided let's just start again so we go into this fresh and do it right. So we're going to begin that next week on episode 433. Read along with us, please. Grab your copy of Order of the Phoenix, read chapter one in the days ahead and discuss with us. And if you have anything, any questions, any thoughts about the opening chapter, please send them in to MuggleCast at gmail.com or use the contact form on MuggleCast.com. Also on MuggleCast.com, you can find our voicemail number, which is one, two, nope. 920-3-MUGGLE. Sorry. I thought I could remember it. 1218 was the 20 magic. area code for our old... Yeah, that was our old phone number mm-hmm. now it's one nine two oh three muggle one nine two oh three six eight four four five three call us email us let us know your thoughts on chapter one we would love to include your analysis with our analysis in episode 433 and beyond it's time now for quizich last week's question was submitted by kieran or karen i'm Hope I'm not pronouncing that wrong, but uh, we are taking listeners submitted uh, Quizits questions, even during our chapter by chapter. So submit if you got them. But the question was, uh, where did Harry get the name Hedwig to name his owl, Hedwig? And the answer was uh, actually from book one. It was from A History of Magic by Bethilda Bagshot. Did you guys know that? Yeah, I actually decided to name Brooklyn because of... Uh, what I read in that book as well. <laughs> what does a history of magic have to say about Brooklyn? Oh, they write about dogs and how cute they are. And I was like, oh, Brooklyn's cute. I'll name him. I don't know what I'm saying. Oh, man. I was like, oh, that's really cool. Uh, very fantastic. Burning. Yeah, quick. very fantastic beast. See, um, to think of New York and the Wizarding World. But anyway, the correct answers were submitted to us over on Twitter using hashtag Quizich, submitted by Kate Yang. Amanda can paint. Ulysses Batman, Tori Flying Ford Anglia, Machauna, Holly, Robbie Stillman, Voldy Merica, Fluffy McNutters, Casper plays Quizich from memory. Okay, good for you, Casper. Janifler, Asim, Natalie Broadhurst, Lauren Law, Corgi Ann, Mandy, Danielle, Karen F., Meg Scott, My Life is a Muggle, Justin Sharkey, and Sarah Davis. Next week's question I came up with. What type of flower bed does Harry find himself laying in <laughs> as the book opens? This was nuts. You guys remember like the, uh, I think it was released in advance 
that Harry's yeah, just like that laying opening in paragraph some... or two. <laughs> he's just laying in some flowers. Yeah, he's like, "Here's our hero." Just uh, saw Voldemort come back. He's chilling in the daisies, but it's not daisies. Yeah. So, submit your answer to us over on Twitter using hashtag Quizich. I still remember reading that opening paragraph because, mm-hmm. like you said, Eric, it was released as a preview. And it was summertime, of course, when the book was released. And it's like, oh, man, it's summertime. Harry's experiencing the summertime. I'm just like Harry. This is so cool. Uh, yeah, I was 15 that year when Harry was 15. So it was. it's, I think, on his 15th birthday, right? So I was really, really happy about truly that. Truly grown up with him. <laughs> Got that summertime, summertime sadness. Is that <laughs> those are the words? Anyway. That's right. Yeah. Lana Del Rey. Okay. New album out now. Oh, there you go. Not with that song. Now I can Spotify that. All right. Um, <laughs> is that all today then, I think? One other thing, Andrew, uh, just to briefly mention before we wrap up is about LeakyCon 2019 Boston edition. Yes. Yes, we will. Eric and I will be at LeakyCon 2019 from October 11th through the 13th in Boston, Massachusetts. It's being held at the Seaport Hotel in World Trade Center and uh, I saw that they actually announced uh, just the other day a side trip that they're going to be taking to Salem to check out all the history about the Salem witch trials. It isn't that time of year, so uh, it's going to be uh, a lot of fun. And uh, Eric and I are still figuring out uh, the panel situation, which panels will be on, but uh, really looking forward to heading up to Boston in uh, mid-October. That's yeah, like five weeks away. So listeners of MuggleCast uh, can get $10 off registration. All you have to do is use code MUGGLE when checking out. So head on over to LeakyCon.com now and uh, sign up. We'd love to see you up there. And uh, yes, we do plan on doing a MuggleCast meetup. More details to follow. Yeah, but it will not be on that Salem day. They're actually going up the day before LeakyCon to Salem. It's October 10th, the Thursday. And I'm not flying until like midday, so I'm going to miss the trip. But uh yeah, we will be there. There will be a meetup, and uh, we may have some uh, unique physical gifts that are very rare. Oh, yeah. Andrew, how'd your, your gift giving go? Oh, great. In, in I, I think I think nobody – so I left them on a table at Trivia Night. Maybe a couple people grabbed them. I wasn't keeping track <laughs> of how many were left over at the end of the night. And, uh, yeah, they're bookmarks. We made MuggleCast bookmarks. How appropriate, Am- right? Amazing. A book podcast. This was Micah's idea. I'm surprised none of us thought of this. None of us thought of this idea sooner. But yeah, we have some cool bookmarks made up, and they kind of play on uh, the bookmark being in a Harry Potter book, and it also, of course, promotes the show. So those will be handed out at LeakyCon or any other events that we attend going forward. Love it. All right. Well, that concludes this week's episode of MuggleCast. Thank you for listening. Make sure you are subscribed using whatever podcast app you use. We would also appreciate a review if your podcasting app allows reviews. iTunes, of course, does. So if you are an iTunes user, an Apple Podcasts user, please take a moment. Leave a review of the show so new listeners can see those when they are contemplating hitting that subscribe button themselves. We would really appreciate that. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. Happy back to Hogwarts, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. Choo-choo. 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 <laughs> <laughs>